I want to talk to you today um, about being totally devoted to Jesus. And this message God's given me is called Total Devotion. And so we're going to be in a few different scriptures. But I have a a question to ask you uh, as we're diving in today. And the question I feel like the Lord wants me to ask you is this. What if what's holding you back in life is you holding back from God? So if you're feeling held back in your faith, if you're feeling held back in your marriage, maybe there's something holding your marriage back from what you feel it should be or could be or what you know the Lord wants it to be. There's something holding your family back, your kids, your relationships. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your, your calling in life, your destiny. And you're, you feel like you've always, you're meant to do more for the Lord. God has more for you, a purpose for you, but you don't know what that is yet. Or you just feel like you've been trying to do it, but there's just something holding you back. And my question to you today that I feel the Lord wants me to ask you is what if whatever's holding you back is actually you holding back from God? Let me say it a few different ways. What if dying to yourself and giving God your all would actually be what propels you forward in your faith? What if dying to yourself and giving God everything is what would actually heal your marriage? What if dying to yourself and laying it all down for him is what would give you the purpose and fulfillment you've been seeking and so many other things? I was reading Luke chapter 14 probably a month or so ago. And Jesus talks about what it means to follow him in that passage. And this word rose up in my spirit, being totally devoted to God. And so I want to talk to you today about what it means to be totally devoted to him. And I feel that that's what the Lord is calling all of us to. In fact, that's, that's what he calls every single believer in Jesus to, is total devotion to Jesus. So what does total devotion mean? What does it mean to be devoted to something? The word devote means to give over or direct time, money, or effort to a cause or activity. The word devotion means the act of dedicating something to a cause, enterprise, or activity. To dedicate means to set apart to a definite use, to commit to a goal or a way of life. I think one of the best examples in our culture of being devoted to something that we all resonate with, that we've all experienced, is when you're probably junior high, high school, growing up, being devoted to like a sport. How many of you know someone in your life who is totally devoted to a particular sport or maybe a lot of sports, right? They are practicing several hours a day, five to six days a week. Like their, their schedules and their lives revolve around that sport and when they're going to do that sport and when they're going to practice that sport. They arrange their eating and sleeping schedules to accommodate how they can practice and be devoted to that sport. Um, I remember hearing about uh, Michael Phelps several years ago. I saw an interview of him on TV 
and uh, he was talking. They were talking about his practice regimen, and then also how he eats and prepares himself. And he he talked about literally seven days a week. He would practice two times a day for about two to three hours. So he'd practice five to six hours a day. But he would eat between eight and ten thousand calories a day to help fuel how uh, he practiced in his swimming. And these were like healthy, clean, good calories. So that's a lot of food that you would have to consume. And they were asking him about his social life and, you know, going to parties and people his age, you know, as a teenager and then in his 20s. And he's like, I don't go to parties. I don't, I don't have time for that. I, that would interfere with my devotion to what I do. And I think that is one of the best pictures in our culture of what it looks like to be totally devoted to something. It's like he still has to eat. He still has to sleep. He still has family relationships. He still has friends. He still has things in life he has to do. But his whole life is revolving around this one thing. And for him, it was swimming. I think that's a picture of what the Lord wants for us in our lives. Jesus wants to be the one thing, and he wants to be the one thing that our whole lives revolve around. And so, yes, we have families, we have kids, we got to get them to school, they have activities, we have our work, we have things we have to do. We do those things, but our lives, the center of our lives is Jesus. And so, what does it look like for me and you to have our lives revolve around Jesus and for him to be the one thing? And I don't want anyone to mistake what I'm saying or come under a false idea of what devotion to God looks like. I don't think that uh, Jesus necessarily wants all of us to be in the Bible two times a day for between two and three hours and uh, maybe fasting eight to 10,000 calories a day every day of our life so that we can be totally devoted to him. But he wants to be the centerpiece. He wants to be the thing that is driving us. Like when we're going to work, providing for our families, the way we love our families, it's what's driving all of that is our devotion to him. And we're living for a greater purpose, which is his purpose and his call. In John chapter 17, 16 through 19, Jesus is, Jesus is praying this this famous prayer of Jesus. It's the longest prayer of Jesus in scripture. It's right before he went to the cross. And there's a little snippet of this prayer. He says, they, my, my followers, he's talking about his disciples, they are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. This is where we get the saying, it's like a modern Christian proverb that's actually not in the Bible, but it's, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. That's actually not explicitly in scripture, but this passage is where we get that idea. He says, my disciples, they're not of the world, but I'm sending them into the world. We're to be change agents in the world. We're to be salt and light. But if we're going to change the world, we can't be the same as the world. So we have to be different. We have to be like Jesus. And so Jesus says, for this reason, he says, for them, I sanctify myself. The word sanctify is similar to the word holy. 
And these words, we tend to think uh, morally pure when we think of the word holy or sanctification. And these words, that's a connotation of what it means. But the most, the best meaning of what it means to be holy or to be sanctified is to be set apart for a special use. So Jesus is saying, like, I came to change the world, and now I'm calling these men to follow me and to be my change agents after me and to call other people to follow them and to be different, to be in the world but not of it. And because of that, I'm sanctifying myself, which means I'm setting myself apart for a special use, which means that Jesus was saying, there's a lot of things I could do with my life. Maybe there were some things he used to do with his life. Even good, we know he never sinned, but he grew up as a carpenter. He probably did some carpentry uh, for the first 30 years of his life. And yet there came a time when he even set that aside and was like, I am fully setting myself apart to be fully devoted to the Father and what the Father wants and the Father's will in my life. I sanctify myself. I set myself apart. So that my followers, the people who are following me, will be set apart. And the reason he says this is because if the leader is not all in, the followers will not be all in. The Holy Spirit spoke it to me this way. If the pastor is not all in, the people will not be all in. Some of you parents in the room, let me say it to you this way. If the parents are not all in, there's very little chance the children will be all in. And so if you want your children, the people you influence, to truly follow Jesus, and by the way, that should be our greatest desire for the people in our lives, is that I want them to follow Jesus. I want them to know Jesus. I want them to walk with him. I want him to be their everything. The number one thing that we need to do is not preach to them, teach to them, tell them. The number one thing that we need to do is for Jesus to be our everything. And that's why the apostles, Paul said, follow my example as I'm following the example of Christ. Being totally devoted, being totally devoted to Jesus means I'm going to be devoted to certain spiritual disciplines on a daily basis. I'm going to be devoted to discipling others in a church family context, helping them know the word of God, helping them live it out by my example and, and sharing my encouragement and the revelations that God has given me. It also means I'm not going to be able to live like other quote unquote normal other people in my age or my stage of life. It means I'm not going to be able to spend my money as freely or frivolously as some of my peers might who don't know Jesus, who aren't living for the one thing. It means I'm not going to be able to waste as much time on hobbies or entertainments as other people who are not living for this one thing that their life revolves around. And just in FYI, I did a little research. Did you know the average American spends three hours a day on their phone Two and a half hours on social media every day. And three hours watching TV every day. All of those things. The average American. But the average American isn't living for the one thing. They're not living for Jesus. 
Their life is not revolving around him. And so as believers, our lives should look different based on what our, our heart is revolving around and what we're truly living for. It means that I'm not going to be able to treat church family or evangelism or good works God's called me to as second or third tier priorities in my life. If I'm living for the one thing. If my life's revolving around him. Because I'm dedicated. I'm devoted. And I believe Jesus, as we're stepping into 2024, is calling us to total devotion. Total devotion. I believe we are, as a church family, where we're at on our journey prophetically, is we're in a John 21 moment. I truly believe that. Where Jesus comes to the disciples after the cross and he calls them back and he restores their faith because they were really doubting themselves. They had messed up. They had fallen away from him. They had, in a moment of testing, they had failed some tests. And Peter, of course, was one of the biggest ones. He denied him three times. He's like, I, I will die for you. The night before, I will die for you. I will die for you. I guess it wasn't the night before. It was a few nights before, right? I will die for you. And Jesus says, no, you won't. He said, this very night you're going to deny you even know me three times. And so Peter's in this moment of really struggling with feeling worthy to follow Jesus. And Jesus restores him. He asks him three times, do you love me? Peter says, yes, you know that I love you three times. If you study the passage there Jesus, the first two times, says, do you love me? And it's the Greek word phileo, which means brotherly love and affection. And Peter, yes, you know I love. The third time, Jesus says, do you agape love me? The love of God, fully love me, selflessly love me. And Peter responds, it says Peter's hurt. And he responds out of this hurt, you know that I phileo love you. Peter did not even feel worthy to, to, to claim you're my everything. I love you with everything because his failure the, a few nights before, he knew that he had denied Christ. He knew that he was not totally devoted. You find out whether you're totally devoted or not when times of testing come, when things get hard, when life squeezes you. It's like fruit, as they say, when you squeeze fruit, What's inside comes out. When life tests you, when you get squeezed, what's in you comes out. And what Peter found is even though in his heart, as Jesus, Jesus said it best to Peter on the night he was betrayed, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Three times Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? He says, yes. He says, then feed my sheep. And then he says this. When you were young, you went where you wanted. You dressed yourself. But when you're old, someone else will dress you, meaning you're going to be in prison. And they're going to lead you where you don't want to go, meaning they're going to lead you to a cross and they're going to kill you. Jesus' restoration of Peter was both an encouragement. It was him saying, I have grace for your failure. You got tested and you found that you were lacking. You'd, you'd been following me, Peter, for three years and then when you got tested, you, you thought you were totally devoted and you found out you weren't. But I'm giving you grace. I'm covering over that. 
He's saying, feed my sheep three times. I still want you on the team. I still want you to be one of my key leaders. That's the grace of God. Even though you had this failure, I still want you. But in that moment where he's calling him again, he lets him know it's going to require everything. And there's going to come a day when like, you're not just going to be able to do whatever you want to do anymore. And I just find it amazing that Peter had followed Jesus for three years. And when he started to follow him, when he was called, he left everything. He gave up everything to be fully devoted to Christ. And yet after three years of being fully devoted, he found that there were places in him that still were not fully devoted. He found there were some places where he was holding back. Now, whether it was fear, whether it was caring what people thought, whatever the reason was, he denied he knew Jesus in that moment. I remember several years ago in our church uh, when we were up in Michigan, and this man in his 40s came up to me after I had preached a sermon. And he said, man, I've been following Jesus for a long time. And yet, through your message today, I feel like I've been walking with him for a long time, and yet I still have never given him everything. And I said, I know the feeling. And he said, I want to give him everything. I'm like, okay. And so if you've been in a time of testing and you found that maybe you weren't fully devoted or you weren't as devoted as you thought you were, or maybe you don't love God as much as you thought you did, it's a dual message for you today. The first message is encouragement. Jesus' grace covers that. He's calling you back. He's giving you another opportunity. He's calling you again. He's re instituting his covenant with you. But he's also calling you to greater devotion. And the encouragement for Peter was, you messed up, I have grace, but one day you will give your life for me. And you will go the distance. You will go all the way to the end. And Peter was, he was faithful to that. And so I believe we're in this moment where The Lord is coming to us, and he's calling us again. He's calling us fresh. And he's saying, maybe you've been following Jesus for a while, maybe for years, and you've reached this place, and he's saying, I want you to give me everything. And I believe the Lord's going to bring up some places and some things in us today or highlight some areas where maybe we're holding back on him. And he's saying that too, that too, that too. He wants us to count the cost. And he's giving us the opportunity. I think part of the problem why we struggle to live totally devoted to Jesus and give him everything and have our lives revolve around him is that we tend to confuse what it means to follow Jesus in our culture. And I'm, this is something I'm deeply concerned about, especially for the younger generations. For like anyone in this room who's around my age or younger. And by the way, I'm 39, so I'm almost 40. I'll be 40 in a few months. So if you're my age or younger, if you're younger than 40, th- this is a really big concern of mine for you. As cultural mindsets seep their ways into the church, And we begin to buy into a cultural view of what it means to follow Jesus rather than the biblical view. And my concern is that 
younger generations think that to follow Jesus means what it means to follow someone on social media. If you follow someone on YouTube or Instagram or Facebook, what does that mean? There's a button. You go to their page. You click the button. Thumbs up. And now, now what happens? You're going to see their content. And maybe you follow some good Christian leaders. I know I do. And I even say things like, oh, that guy's a good follow, which means he posts a lot of good content and it's stuff I resonate with that, that I, like they put to words what I wish I could say and they say it much better and much shorter. And so they share these little quotes. I'm like, oh, that's perfect. And then you can reshare that. You know, that's a good follow. And I, I feel like a lot of, especially in America and Western Christianity, that's how a lot of people feel about following Jesus. It's like, you know what? I think I'm going to go to church. You know what? Like, I like Jesus. I click the follow button and now I'm going to see some of his content. You know, I'm going to sit in church. I'm going to hear the word, hearing the word of God. I'm getting the, oh, there's a little quote. I might share that on social. Oh, verse of the day, share, you know. But then I just move on and really I'm living my life the way I want to live it. I'm doing my thing, but I follow Jesus. And I just need you to know today, especially if you're those younger generations, That is not at all what it meant to follow Jesus or to follow a rabbi in the first century. There was a whole society based around, their whole society really revolved around temple worship, the word of God, and the rabbis were priests, teachers of the law. They would have also been lawyers and judges in the society. So think of someone who's a pastor, a judge, and a lawyer, all all of it. That's what they would have been like. They were like, for them, they didn't have sports. Like in our culture, the sports athlete or the, the celebrity is like the epitome of, of what we lift up and we idolize. For them, it was like the rabbis, the judges, the priests. They were, they were it. And so they had this whole system developed to, to raise up people to train them into the rabbinical priesthood. And I want to explain just a little bit of what it meant to follow a priest or to follow a rabbi in the first century. Their education as children would have started about five years old to about 12 years old. And it was pretty normal education, reading, writing, arithmetic, and history, mostly oral history for them, right? And at the age of 12, most kids probably would have been done with schooling and then entered into some type of trade, whether it was carpentry or being a farmer or whatever. The rabbis, a lot of the schooling, uh, if the community had a synagogue, would take place at the synagogue. The rabbis would help teach the children. There was a lot of, quote-unquote, homeschooling as well. So it was, it was a both and. But at, around the age of 12, the rabbis would pick the best and the brightest students that they had the, felt had the most potential. Of course, these would have been all males as well at this time in history. And they would have chosen them to continue on in what we might call high school or college age training, but it was... It was kind of the same level for them, starting around the age 12. If they were chosen to continue on, they would have studied from the age 12 to about the age of 17 to 20 years old, uh, the Torah, and they would have, the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament law. So it's the books of Moses, the law of Moses. And by the end of this five years or so of training, one of the goals was they would have the first entire five books of scripture committed to memory. Totally and completely memorized. 
but they also would be training them in critical understanding, not just knowing what it says, but why does it say it and how, what does it mean for how we should live? And at the end of that training time, when they're late teens, maybe coming into early 20s, the rabbis would find, again, the best and the brightest, not very many at all, a very select few, and they would be chosen. It's a selection process. I think the closest thing we have in our culture to this is like high school sports athletes, again, maybe receiving an acceptance letter to a a university to get a full ride scholarship and play sports for that university. And if you get that full ride, what are you going to do? You're going to move into that university. You're going to live there. You're going to eat there. You're going to sleep there. You're going to go to school there. But the whole reason you're there is to play that sport. You have practices usually twice a day. And it's like, you know, morning, evening practices, but I'm going to school and I'm, I'm doing the other things of life. But the whole reason I'm at this university, these four years of my life are totally devoted to this sport. I think that's the closest thing in our culture to what this meant. Because out of those select few as late teens, if they were chosen, the rabbi would go up to them or they would send a messenger and they would say, Rabbi so-and-so says, follow me. Formal invitation. And they knew this was a big deal. This is like getting the letter. I've been accepted. Now you still have a choice to choose to receive it or not. But if you choose to receive it, what that means is you're leaving your family. You're moving away. You're moving into the home of the rabbi. They most likely would have had larger homes. And and we're not talking hundreds of students. We're talking like a handful of students would live with them at, at one time. And you would live with them. You would eat all the meals with them. You would job shadow them every single day for a period of several years until they felt you were ready. And when you were fully trained, then they would initiate you as, as, a, as a true priest. You would help with all of the work at the temple. You would help with uh, teaching the scriptures. You wouldn't be allowed to teach early on, but you would be like an assistant. And then as you get older and as you're qualified and they would initiate you, okay, now you can begin to teach. That is what that process looked like. And so when Jesus went up his his disciples, we get confused because the gospels tell the story uh, from a little different perspective in each of the four gospels. And of course, Mark's gospel is really hard hitting and fast paced. And it's like Jesus walks up and says, follow me. They say, okay. And they drop everything and follow him. And we don't understand that Jesus was preaching and teaching for a period of most likely several months before that moment comes where he goes up to them and says, follow me. They knew who he was. It says Andrew found Peter and, and says, let's go see, you know, the Messiah, you know, and, and he's ca- they're, they're being drawn. They're hanging out around his ministry. They're hearing some of his teaching. They're seeing him start to do some things. And then comes the moment he walks up to them as they're out fishing. James and John, Peter and Andrew, they're partners in the fishing business. Uh, James and John's father, Zebedee, is in their boat with them. They're all in this together. These guys all knew each other, co-workers. He walks up to them and he says, follow me. And that's why in that moment they knew this is a man who's giving us this formal invitation. This is a big deal. They knew what it meant and they went, okay. And that's why it says they dropped the nets This is a wholly committed lifestyle. I can't work with my dad and follow Jesus. Like I have to commit my whole life to him. I'm going to live with him, eat with him, uh, 
sleep in the same place he sleeps, hear, sit with his teaching, do ministry alongside him, be his assistant. It's going to be all consuming. And that's why it says they dropped the nets. It says their father Zebedee, James and John was in the boat. I mean, they're in the middle of the workday. Can you imagine in our culture, if, if, if you're like in construction, you're framing up a house with your dad, that's your job, and Jesus walks up, formal invitation, you've been accepted, follow me, and you just go, whoa, it's now or never. And you drop everything, you're like, sorry dad, see you later. They knew what it meant to follow Jesus. They knew that if they're making this decision, it's, it's all consuming. It's everything. I think something else that gets us confused is we tend to think because that's what it meant for them to follow him. It was a vocational thing as well. So we tend to think, well, this is for pastors. This is for people called a vocational ministry to have their whole life revolve around him and, 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 and God bless them and God help them. But uh, for the rest of us, we have to go to work and do other things. And I'm at work eight hours a day. So my life we tend to think whatever I'm spending the most time on, that's what my life has to revolve around. That is not true at all. It's a heart posture. It's a heart posture. Before I was a pastor, I worked in a secular workplace, and my life was all about Jesus. And so uh, during lunch break, I spent lunch break with some of those people and found out the conversation went real quick. And so I was like, you know, I think I'm just going to I didn't tell anybody this. I just kind of slip away and do a Bible study by myself on my lunch break. Why? Because I want to be focused on Jesus through the day. And you know what happened? A few of my coworkers started noticing that and went, can I join you? And even though, to be really honest, I did not want them to join me, even though they were believers, I wanted to be by myself. I was like, yeah, sure. And, and this thing started where we started reading the Bible and we would pray for each other, real brief, real short, over lunch. And then we would go right back to it. And then I started noticing, it's like, well, I'm here. My life is for Jesus. How can I start sharing faith with some of these people? And my mind drifted to those things, right? And I started looking for ways to do that because I'm not here just to earn money. I earn money for my family. I'm here to be a witness. I'm here to be salt and light. None of these people know Jesus. Actually, there was three guys in that group that I worked with that knew Jesus. The rest of them didn't. The vast majority didn't. And, and as I read the word at that time, young man in his young 20s, like, that means common sense. If they persist in this, they'll go to hell. I can't stand that. Like, my life is not about why we're here to earn a paycheck. My life is about Jesus. How can I help them? How can I pray for them? How can I encourage them? How can I find ways to bring up church? Oh, do you go to church? <laughs> it's like, turn the conversation toward the things of God. How can I just care about them? Be a pastor in the workplace without having a title. That's what it looks like. The apostle Paul was a tent maker. He had a normal job, and yet he's the guy that wrote most of the New Testament of our Bible. I, I, I go to work, I make the tents, I earn some money, but it's so that I can be a witness for Jesus. He's like, I'm living my life for this one thing to testify to God's, about God's grace. That's why we're alive. In Christ. That's why we're living our lives. And that's, he wants our whole lives to be revolving around him. Luke chapter 14, Jesus does some teaching about what it means to follow him. And he tells several different stories. He gives different examples. And I want to read some of this. Luke 14, 25 through 34. It says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus 
And turning to them, he said this. Now think about this. Large crowds, thousands of people are following him. And for that reason, he's like, man, I really, I want these people to know what they're getting into. (laughs) I want them to count the cost. I want them to be aware of what it really means to follow me. Turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Wow. Like, in America's progressive Christian culture that waters down the gospel, We like to say Jesus loves and forgives everyone, and that's it. And we forget he said things like this all the time, actually. That's extreme, Jesus. Why would you say unless we hate father and mother, siblings, family, friends? It it doesn't mean that we need to hate people, obviously, because he taught that we should love everyone and love God. And one of the best ways we love God is by loving other people. It was a Jewish idiom, a figure of speech. That meant in comparison to how you love me, it's as if you hate them. What he was saying is, if there ever comes a moment in your life where you have to choose between what your family or friends think versus what I think, you choose me. And that's why he said it that extreme. Because he knew if you're following me, and you're not fully committed, there will come a time when even family and friends and spouses and children, and not, not even unbelieving family and friends and spouses and children, believing family and friends will challenge your faith or your calling. Mary and his own brothers challenged Jesus They came to stop him from preaching because they thought he was out of his mind. He's gone too far. He's too extreme. I wonder if anybody who goes to free people church has ever had anyone in their family think that you're a little too extreme for Jesus now. It's a little too much now. Like we're kind of scared of your version of Christianity and we kind of avoid hanging out with you now because we think it might be the devil. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. They're laughing because they know. You know, Jesus was so extreme that he was accused of being the devil. Did you know he said to his followers, he said to his followers, if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, How much more the members of the household? And so the religious spirit hates the free Holy Spirit. But if you can drive out demons, then you're not in partnership with demons. Jesus said it's that simple. So it's, it's... It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure these things out. He goes on in verse 27. And notice he says this all all at once to this large crowd. Let me just read the rest of it. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me 
cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. I believe in his grace. He's saying in this moment, it's going to be hard to follow me. If you're truly following Jesus, true Jesus for who he is and doing what he wants, there's going to be some hard moments ahead. Some moments where you have to choose between what you want, your comfort, and a cross. And I believe in his grace. He's like, man, I don't want you to be embarrassed and get to that moment and decide, never mind, I don't want this. He's like, I want you to have this mindset of being fully devoted. I'm in for whatever, no matter what, even before you start. It's like that Spanish conquistador. When they arrived, it's a true story. I forget the name, but when they arrived, they had this mission to explore the continent and to figure things out. And he had his commanders burn the ships. Now, why would he do that? Because if the ships were an option, he knew once they get in and things are going to get hard and they will get hard, that's when the hearts of the men are like, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Let's go back to the ships. And if you still have a ship of a life to go back to, when things get hard, you'll go back to it. And think about Peter after he denies Christ. What does it say he did? He went back to fishing. He's going back to the old job. He's like, I'm just going to go fishing. And they all say, we'll go with you. Out of their own dejection because they know they had failed. He wants you to count the cost. And then he says this, suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples Jesus is saying, I'm the king with 20,000 soldiers. You only have 10,000. I'm going to win. And if you want to follow me and be in partnership with me, this isn't, we're not going to like share the kingdom together. Share the leadership. No, I demand full surrender. I want you to be under my headship and under my authority and under my protection and under my provision, which is actually a grace which removes all the pressure from you from having to figure it all out and to do everything and have it all depend on you. He's the leader. It's all on him. And then he says this, verse 34, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. The context for losing saltiness is compromise. It's thinking that you can follow Jesus and your own will or your own desires. Lukewarm Christians lose their saltiness. The only way we keep from being lukewarm is by being totally devoted to him. I think... We have this picture in our minds, especially in charismatic circles, 
of being on fire for God. Like we always want to be on fire for him. I want to be on fire. And in our, in our minds, we have this picture that, that being on fire means we're always excited. We're always happy. And we're always pumped up about the Lord at all times. But I think the best picture of what it means to be totally devoted is not someone who's always excited about God. I think it's a picture of someone who is always willing to carry their cross. And I think the cross of Jesus is the best picture of what it means to be totally devoted. The reason the movie Mel Gibson made about the cross is called The Passion of the Christ goes back to antiquity, and the meaning of the word passion means a willingness to suffer for something that you love. And I don't, I don't think Jesus was very excited in Gethsemane or at the cross. I don't think he was shouting praise. I don't think he was very happy in that moment. There was a joy, but it, he knew it was set before him. <laughs> It wasn't his yet. So I don't know if Jesus was on fire at the cross. But I know he was totally devoted. Because total devotion looks like a willingness to embrace the cross. And that's why Jesus said, whoever is going to follow me must deny themselves, take up their own cross daily. And follow after me. That's what total devotion looks like. Total devotion means total self-denial. A few weeks ago, I was talking to my wife about this subject. Feeling the Lord laying this on my heart. Total devotion. Calling people to total devotion. And she said, you know, I've been thinking that. I feel like the, a word for our church for 2024 is, is he must increase. Jesus must increase. And I was like, yes, that's the same thing it is. But I said, everyone wants him to increase. Everyone wants more of God. You ask any Christian, any church, do you want more of God in 2024? Yeah, more of you, Jesus. We're on fire. <laughs> I want to be on fire for you. More, 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 Lord. Well, how do you get more of God? If he is going to increase, we have to decrease. You give over more of yourself and you get more of him and you see more of him move in your life. How do we bring the kingdom of God more? We give over more of ourselves to see more of the kingdom come. It's proportional to our faith and our yielding to the Holy Spirit. Which means we're living less and less for ourselves and more and more for him. Listen to a few other passages of Jesus calling people to follow him. Mark 10, the rich young ruler, says Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and you have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Luke 9, 57 through 62 it says, they were, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man 
has no place to lay his head. He's like, are you sure about that? Because it's not going to be easy. There's no hotel waiting for us. He's like, I, I appreciate your zeal, but zeal without knowledge is not wise. And you need to consider what you're saying. It's not going to be an easy road. Verse 59 of the same chapter, he said to another man, Jesus said to him, follow me. But this man replied, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said this to him. Can you imagine a modern day pastor saying this to someone? Hey, God, Jesus is calling you. He wants you to follow him. Well, let me go take care of my dad's funeral. And Jesus says to this man, let the dead bury their own dead. You come and you proclaim, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another, verse 61 said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Again, we forget that Jesus said these things about what it means to follow him. It means giving him our all. And just like Peter in John 21, I believe Many of you are coming to a realization today, like I have several times in my life. I gave up my everything to follow him. I left my old life. I've been trying to, like as the Lord was laying this on my heart, I'm like, what do you want from me? What more do you want? I've given you everything. What do you mean, Vita? I am totally devoted. What do you want? And then something will come up in my heart and go, oh, accept that guess I need to give that up or oh except that I guess I need to do that you're which you've been calling me to do that I haven't done yet and you find these places where you haven't been and again I believe many of you might find yourself in that place today there's grace but then he never backs down from the high calling there's grace for ways you've fallen short but he never changes the standard total devotion As I've said, I believe the best example of this is Jesus' example himself and the life of Christ. But John 19, verse 17, jumped out at me the other day and really pierced my heart. It says, carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. I think the best picture of what it means to be totally devoted is the cross. And Jesus said, if we're going to follow him, each of us need to take up our own cross. So what does that mean, to take up your cross and follow after him? Obviously, he wasn't speaking about a literal Roman. He doesn't want us to move to Rome and and lobby for them to reinstitute crucifixion as a means of death and then get a physical wooden cross and pick it up and say, okay, go ahead. Obviously, he's talking about something else. What is the cross? What does the cross represent? And when I read that the other day, I felt like, the Holy Spirit said to me very clearly, I want you to write down everything the cross represents. And I'm sure there's more things than this, but I wrote down seven things, and I want to share them with you very briefly. Number one, the cross is an instrument for crucifying sin. And so if there's still sin in your life, as Scripture says, you need to put to death the misdeeds of your own body. It's a choice you make where you say, I'm not going to do that anymore out of my honor and respect for Jesus. Put to death the misdeeds of the body. Number two, 
The cross represents hard obedience. And I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but for Jesus, the cross was not him crucifying his own sin. For Jesus, the cross represented a very difficult obedience that the father was asking him to do that was not going to benefit him in any way. It was truly just to help other people. So if you find in your life that you've, God has never asked you to do something difficult that you don't want to do. If that's true in your faith, or maybe you have had those moments and you haven't followed through, then perhaps I would suggest maybe you're not totally devoted to Jesus yet. Number three, the cross represents a willingness to endure persecution. Sometimes those hard obedience moments come, and the reason we don't want to follow through is we go, if I do that, a whole lot of people aren't going to like me anymore. But the cross represents a willingness to be misunderstood for the sake of obedience, to be persecuted, to be avoided, to be made fun of, to be mocked, and in Jesus' case, even physically harmed and even killed for his faith. It's a willingness that if it comes to that, you're still going to be faithful to Jesus. Number four, the cross represents making making intercession for those who persecuted you. (laughs) So perhaps some of you have been in a moment where you're like, all right, I'll do this hard obedience. I know there's not going to be a great reaction. And you do what God wants and you get persecuted. And you're like, love your enemies. I'm smiling at them, but I'm like, Lord, you say, do my prophets no harm. I'm the pupil of your eye. And you're, Lord, get them. Get them, God. Get them, God. Go ahead, anytime. You're waiting for the lightning to strike your enemies. Come on, Lord. Come on, get them. To which Jesus would say, you don't know what spirit you're of. So the cross not only represents a willingness to be, do hard obedience and be persecuted, but when those people persecute you, it represents now you respond by making intercession for them. You know, when people persecute you, it can cause confusion in you. It causes you to second guess yourself and go, am I, am I, was I really on track there? Was I really doing the will of God or was that me just doing what I wanted and, and, and did I make a mistake here? But if you're walking in close communion with Jesus, he will give you confidence in your obedience. And you will be able to see, man, their perspective is twisted. And you can truly pray as he did, Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. They just don't realize. And so if you have been persecuted, misunderstood, avoided for the sake of the gospel, have you made intercession for those who mistreated you? Because if not, I would suggest perhaps you're not totally devoted to Jesus. Number five, the cross is an unwillingness to compromise truth. This is where Peter made his mistake. He was like, I'm willing, I'm willing, I'm willing until, oh wait, they're going to kill me too. You know what? I don't even know the guy. (laughs) It says when Jesus was on trial, he didn't open his mouth. He didn't defend himself. But we know that his, what they were putting him on trial for was unjust. 
But what put him in that judgment seat was the fact that he spoke truth. And when the moment of testing came, he didn't back down. He goes, he didn't go, you know what, guys? I'm sorry I did miracles on the Sabbath. I, I, I'll con- let's make a compromise. I, I'll still do miracles. I just won't do them on the Sabbath anymore since that really upsets you guys. You know what? I just won't drive out demons anymore since I know that that upsets you guys. <laughs> he didn't compromise. He stood firm. And the scriptures say that if you're a follower of Jesus, you're his ambassador and his representative on this earth. And we're living in a day and age when, again, a whole lot of Christianity in America is losing its saltiness. It's not pleasing to Jesus. It's not Christianity. It's our own golden calf Christianity. We're making Christianity in our own image and what we want. It's not Bible. It's not Jesus. I was in the gym working out the other day and a man who used to be a judge and a politician in this area that I knew was talking to me and he was talking about running for office again. I was like, you going to do that? And he's like, I don't know yet. I'm thinking about it. Like, cool. He's like, our country's in trouble. And this is a Christian man, conservative Christian man. Our country's in trouble. I'm like, oh, I know. He goes, you know, there's coming. And he was like practically yelling at me. He's like, you know, there's coming a day. Does your church understand there's coming a day that if, if our country continues on this path where if you stand on stage and you tell people this is God's design for marriage and this is what sexual morality is and you need to live according to God's word, that you could be put in prison if things keep going the way they're going? And I go, oh, I know. I know that day is coming if, if something doesn't change. I said, I've talked to my wife and I said, if, if those laws pass and if that happens, do you know the first thing I'm going to be preaching on that next weekend? And she's like, you have a family. I'm like, yeah, but people need to know God's word. Now, most of you in this room will never stand on a stage and have to teach what the Bible says about gender, marriage, sexuality. But I guarantee you, you have friends and family that will come to you and say, what do you think about this? Now, Jesus said, we're going to have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word we utter. And the scriptures say that you and I, all of us, are ambassadors for Jesus. We are, we are his representatives. And some of your friends and family who will ask you that, they may never step foot in a church. They may never read the Bible. You will be the only Bible some people read. Are you a good translation? And if you, as his representative, say, well, I don't think God's that strict. I, don't, I think you can kind of choose and do what you want to do. Who is God going to hold accountable for how they're living? I don't believe it would be me if they never set foot in our church. I believe God will hold us accountable for how we represent him. And so the cross is an unwillingness to compromise truth. Like your example, like Jesus. And I'll tell you what I used to say before. People don't ask me anymore, by the way, because, because I'm a pastor. When I'm in social, I like being incognito out in the world. And people are themselves, and I like it that way because it's honest and transparent. And then people, they're like, oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, oh, shoot. <clears throat> Sorry, I cussed. It's like, I don't care. 
People don't ask me because they assume they know what the answer is going to be. And they're probably right. But they might ask you. They used to ask me. They used to ask me. And do you know what I used to say to people? And, and this is just God's honest truth. I believe this is a humble response. You know, it really doesn't matter what I think. Who am I, you know? But I believe the Bible, and I believe God is God, and he says in his word that this is how it is. And that's a beautiful way to respond that I believe the Holy Spirit led me to because it takes all the pressure off of you. It's like, if you disagree with me and you want to hate me for my answer, take it up with God. <laughs> like, that's his word. And then I would often share with, by the way, I used to struggle with sexual immorality. By the way, I used to struggle with wanting to get drunk and smoking weed and those things. By the way, and to follow God, I came to the conclusion this is truth. So that's just right and wrong. This is what he says. So if I'm going to follow him, I have to repent and turn from those things and live free from those things. And that's what it says in his word. And that's what he calls people to. And then I would say, but if you never choose that, that's fine. I don't judge you. I don't judge you for that. I don't judge people who don't believe or who don't live the way God wants them to. I pray for them. I care about them. I hope they will. But I don't, I don't judge you for that. People are going to ask you. And I think you need to be prepared for the answer you might give. Because you are being a witness. And you will be held accountable for every word that you speak. And how much more when people are asking you about such important things. And I honestly believe it's because the church is staying, say, staying silent that our culture is going the way it's going. And I do believe that a lot of it is pastors staying silent. And that's why we have to speak about cultural issues that God says in his word in the book of Hebrews, marriage, God's design of marriage, marriage itself should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure because God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. And so we're living in a culture that has totally dismantled and devalued marriage. Sexuality is whatever you want it to be. And now even your gender is fluid in whatever you want it to be. And those are lies. That's, that's literally just not true. Jesus said in Matthew 19... Haven't you read the scriptures? Haven't you read that in the beginning God made them male and female? And for this reason, God's design and gender, a man, biological male, will leave his father and mother, biological male and female, and be united to his wife, biological female. And those words in the Greek and in the Hebrew, if you go back to the Old Testament, have gender connotations. It's, and, and then he said, and the two become one flesh. And that's, in God's view, what it means to be married. The parts fit together. It's that simple. That's been true since the dawn of creation. And nothing has changed. Just because our culture wants it to change. And, and we know in our church family that that's, there are principalities that are, there are doctrines of demons, teachings of demons. And people just don't know that that's what's going on. So they buy into it. But we have to be unwilling to compromise truth. If we're going to help people know him, if the church stays silent on cultural issues, we allow the world to disciple the church. If you parents stay silent on cultural issues, you allow the world to disciple your children. 
And you don't have to be preachy to your friends. But man, if they ask you, you need to be, I would be humble, transparent, and truthful. Number six, the cross is the finishing of our sanctification, our setting apart. It says in Hebrews 5, 8, Jesus learned obedience by what he suffered. In John 14, 31, he said, he comes, meaning Judas, who's, meaning the devil possessing Judas. He comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what he has commanded me. He's saying, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be crucified, and all of this is happening so that the world knows I perfectly obey the Father. I'm totally devoted. I'm all in. And in the hardest moment of my life, I'm proving it. And lastly, but surely not the least, number seven, the seventh thing that the cross represents, and this one I believe is actually positive, so the rest have been very difficult, right? This is, this is a positive one. The cross represents God's way to new life. And I want to encourage you with this. The purpose and meaning and fulfillment and joy and peace and new life that you've been looking for is on the other side of the cross that God has asked you to carry. It's on the other side of your total denial of yourself and your total devotion to him. Jesus said it this way, Matthew 16, 25, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Matthew 10, verse 39, whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. If Jesus calls us to die daily to ourselves, do you know what else that means we get to experience daily? Is resurrection life. Which means if we would be willing to die to ourselves every single day, I believe that every single day we would get to experience new mercy and fresh grace, daily hearing his voice, daily revelations from the Holy Spirit that are just for us, daily dreams and visions, daily doing good works and seeing the Father reveal himself to others through our obedience, daily seeing answered prayers, daily seeing miracles, signs, and wonders as we act in faith. That's what we get to experience, daily seeing the kingdom come because we have denied ourselves and decided to follow him. And so as we're coming to the end of 2023, very shortly, and we're thinking about looking ahead into 2024, there's a lot of things you could be thinking about. It's, it's a time we naturally reflect. What has the past year been about? I heard one of my friends say, man, I can't wait for this year to be over. It's been awful. <laughs> Some of you I know feel that way. <laughs> I'm looking to a fresh start. We been, begin to think about ways that we need to change our lives or things we want to do. You know, what am I going to do in 2024? And here's, here's what I believe the Lord is calling us to. <laughs> Forget about your plan for 2024. <laughs> Make your 2024 about being fully devoted to him. And if you get to the end of 2024 and go, I was fully devoted to him, you've won. You won 2024. <laughs> you have succeeded. That is success in the kingdom. It's not like, and listen, I'm wired this way. 
I'm an ambitious, driven, goal-oriented person. And the Lord has consistently, over the past decade of my life, come against that in me and asked me to lay that down. And it, it's frustrating. <laughs> it's hard. Because I think I get my picture of what I want my life to look like. And so I'm like, in 2024, I'm going to work out five days a week. And I'm going to pray for two hours a day. And I'm going to read the Bible this much. And I'm going to do this. And our family's going to do this. And our church is going to do this. And I've, I've mapped everything out. I have all these goals. And then when I look at, the, look at it on paper, I'm like, and that's physically impossible. Based on my time and resources. But I'm going to do it all. I like that kind of stuff. I, I've done that many times. And honestly, I stopped doing it a few years ago. Because the Lord would always frustrate those plans. And he's, it's actually freeing to lay all that down. And to just go, this, the one thing. He just wants one thing. And I do believe in 2024, he's calling us as a church family to seek his face and sit at his feet. As a leader, I'm like, we need to have goals. We, need to, we want to see this many people saved. We want, to see, we want to do this many good works in the world. We want to do, you know, drill water wells and, and do these, you know, help orphans. And we're going to do this much and we're going to do that. I go to pastor meetings where they talk about, you need to set goals. You need to have a vision. Tell your people what the vision is. And I'm like, man, somebody asked me a few weeks ago, someone in our church, like, what's your vision for this church? I'm like, I hope I don't disappoint you, but I don't have one. <laughs> I gave up on that. Because every time I had one, the Lord would frustrate it, and it didn't work. And, and I said, you know, I do have a vision, but it's not uh, accomplishments of our church. It is, it's a culture. And that's a lot harder to uh, quantify and set goals for. But it's a culture of prayer. It's a culture of worship. It's a culture where the average believer is hearing his voice. The average believer is filled with the Holy Spirit, operating where prophecy is normal. Praying in tongues is normal. It's not weird. We understand it. We get it. We know what it is. We know why it's given. We know how to use it. Where this normal, like that, it's a culture of that. And, uh, I've tried mapping out plans and strategies and training sessions to get us there. And that didn't work either. And what I've realized is it's actually freeing. It's one day at a time, one step at a time, one week at a time doing what he says. Then he gets us there. Then he gets all the glory. It's like, wow, how'd you create a church like this? Well, I didn't. (laughs) He did. Because it's not by might nor by power. It's by the spirit of the Lord. And so we're focused on him. And I believe this coming year, he wants us focused on learning how to sit at his feet, learning how to worship, and learning how to seek his face. The one thing. (laughs) My wife is telling me to close by. I thought she was handing me a note saying you're way over time and you need to wrap this up. (laughs) 
I was prepared for that, though. I was ready to humble myself and obey. But she wrote me a note saying uh, that I should read the lyrics of a song I wrote recently to close with. And um, the Lord had me read this last night to start the message. And um, so, yeah, I'm going to obey my wife. And I'll read this to close. Um, But this is a song I wrote the other day called The Distance. And it says this. I'm going the distance. And sometimes that means going back to the start. Your grace and forgiveness are always drawing me back near to your heart. Because you're not done with me yet. And I know that you can still work all of this for my good. But sometimes I don't believe in myself, and that keeps me from trusting you like I should. But ask me again, and the answer's the same. I love you. I love you. I love you. Call me again, and I'll hope in your name. Because I love you. I love you. I love you. And even if I stumble and fall, I'm going to dare again to give you my all. So ask me again, and the answer's the same. I love you. I love you. I love you. You're going the distance. You're going to finish what you started in me. You're giving me vision and passion like the days when I first believed. Because you're not done with me yet, and I know that you can still work all of this for my good. But sometimes I don't believe in myself, and that keeps me from trusting you like I should. But ask me again, and I'll answer the same. I love you, I love you, I love you. Call me again, and I'll hope in your name. Because I love you, I love you, I love you. And even if I stumble and fall, I'm going to dare again to give you my all. So ask me again, and the answer is the same. I love you, I love you, I love you. He's calling you again. He's calling us again to give him all again. And what we find is we haven't really given him all, even though we did. And so now it's time to give him all again in a greater way. And there will probably come a time three, five, ten years from now where he says, give me all again. And you go, man, I didn't give him. I thought I gave him all again. He's calling today. Give him all And here's my encouragement. You'll never regret giving him your all. So give him everything. 2024, feast on him. Focus on him. Make your whole life revolve around him. That's what he wants. Let's pray. God, I just thank you for our time together. And, uh, Lord, I just thank you for your grace to always pursue us and call us again to come after you. God, we know the rich young ruler went away sad. But I have to wonder if he was in that crowd at Pentecost. I have to wonder if he was selling fields and houses. 
to say I missed it the first time. But I'm not missing it this time. I'm giving you everything. Because I tried the world and I tried my wealth and I tried my way and it still didn't satisfy me. And so, God, I just pray for people in this room who are in the same similar place, God, that you would call to them again and again and again until they respond in faith. I pray, Jesus, that you would gently show them their ways are not your ways and that their ways will not satisfy them and that their ways lead to a dead end and that your way is the only way to find true life and true joy and true peace because the fullness of joy is in your presence. Perfect peace only comes when our minds are stayed on you. You are the God of hope. And without you, we're without God and without hope in the world. In you are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all by you and for you and through you and to you. You are the reason we're alive. Every good and perfect gift is from you. You are what keeps our hearts beating. You sustain all things by your powerful word. You sing your love over us, God. And you hope that we will sing it back to you. So I thank you for knocking on the door of our hearts today, Jesus. I thank you for calling us again. And how gentle you are. When you called to Peter, you said, man, bring some of the fish you just caught. You know, the first time he said, follow me, they had to drop the nets and leave all the fish behind and follow him. The second time he said, no, 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 bring some of them. Let's eat. Let's have breakfast together. And then over this gentle, restorative conversation, he says, I want you to still follow me, but it's going to cost your all. I want you to give all. Hold nothing back. So God, I pray that we wouldn't hold anything back. So I pray for courage. I pray for courage in this place today. Courage for your people to humble ourselves, God, to follow hard after you, to push all our chips in and say, you have the words of life. Where else are we going to go? I pray, God, over the next few weeks, you would just highlight ways and places in us, maybe where we're holding back, so that we can give those things up and just go all in with you, Jesus. I pray you would reveal to every heart what it looks like to go all in. For those who've never received you, I pray that you would lead them to make that decision. And for those who've been following you, but maybe holding back, show them, God. Show them how to go all in. We thank you for that, Jesus. Thank you for your leadership. We love you. And it's our delight and honor for anything we have to give up for you. It's a joy and an honor and a delight to do so. It's worth it. You're worth it. You're our all. You're our everything. And we love you. And it's in your name we pray all these things. Amen.